Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. We are back in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are going to consider chapter 18 again today. Last time we talked about the importance of forgiveness when discussing Matthew 18, 12 through 22. The first part of that unit describes how forgiveness is central to the heart of God. He's like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. Then we saw how the second part of the unit describes our responsibility to join our Father in the forgiveness business. The connection between divine and human activity and forgiveness is then powerfully illustrated in the parable that we're going to discuss today. It easily breaks into three sections, the interaction between the king and the first servant in 18, 23 to 27, the interaction between the first servant and his debtor in 18, 28 to 31, and finally a return to an interaction between the king and the first servant in verses 32 to 34. And then the whole thing concludes with a concise and powerful statement in verse 35. Let's begin with the first interaction in Matthew 18, 23 to 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts for his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made so that the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. As with so many parables, the king represents God. Jesus will make this connection explicit in verse 35. So will my Father in heaven do to you. Though it's interesting to note the frequent references to Jesus as Lord that Peter also uses. If we insist on connecting Jesus to one of these characters, we could put him in the king's spot. Now, the other major character in this scene is described as a debtor. And he's not just any debtor. He is described as a debtor of 10,000 talents. This man owes an incredible amount. Some people have tried to explain this claiming that the assumption is that the servant or slave was like a real estate manager and he had some really bad business deal that just fell through. But this is unnecessary. The point is that this is supposed to be a ridiculous number. A talent is about 6,000 denarii, and denarius is about a day's wage. Now, it's difficult to translate this into today's dollars because how much you make per day is probably different than how much I make per day. But 10,000 talents would pay for something like 200,000 years of hard work. If we assume a normal working class pay rate, this is somewhere in the ballpark of $2.5 billion. Commentator Craig Keener explains, quote, The combined annual tribute of Galilee and Perea, just after the death of the repressive Herod the Great, came only to 200 talents. The tribute of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea came to 600 talents. This fact starkly reveals the laughably hyperbolic character 
of the illustration. The poor man owes the king more money than existed in circulation in the whole country at the time. Jesus' hearers would scoff at the man, who was a fool to get so far in debt, and that the king had been a fool to let him get away with it, end quote. But in any case, calculating the amount into our modern currency isn't really the point, as interesting as the numbers are. In Greek, 10,000 is the highest number for which there was a word, and a talent was the largest denomination of currency. One of the leading Greek lexicons or dictionaries today suggests that we actually translate this as zillions. I can't help but wonder, then, if there is some humor in the next line, as Jesus straightforwardly says, a debtor owed 10,000 talents, and guess what? He couldn't pay it. Well, of course. The next line is in keeping with ancient practices in the Old Testament and in the first century. There is no such thing as a bankruptcy law. The slave's goods would have belonged to himself, but his family would probably have belonged to the king too. So the function of selling everything was punitive. The man falls down and prostrates himself before the king. And his response, if you think about it, actually is ridiculous. But it's all that he can say. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. Now, how in the world does he plan on doing that? Again, this would be like 200,000 years of hard work. But seeing the desperation of the servant, we are then told that the king was filled with compassion. His heart goes out to him. He dismisses the man's silly plan and instead freely forgives him everything. Something similar by the way, occurs in the parable of the prodigal son. The son rehearses his speech on his way back to his father. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, or at least that's the line that he rehearses. But when he actually meets the father, the father responds with grace the son did not imagine possible. So too here. It's not difficult to see how this represents the believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.13, God has made us alive together with him, forgiving us all our trespasses. We cannot begin to imagine the magnitude of our sin debt. Aren't you glad that the arrangement wasn't simply something like uh, uh, God appearing to us and saying, write out every sin that you want forgiven on a piece of paper, and I'll forgive those ones. Only God knows the the hugeness, the magnitude of our sin debt, and it is beyond human comprehension. Just imagine, all our sin is forgiven. The story moves on without mentioning the servant's response. It is a parable after all, and so we shouldn't press the details. But the same elation and joy that we could imagine this servant having walking out of the king's presence should be ours. We should exclaim like David, Oh, the happiness of the man whose sin is forgiven, to whom the Lord will not regard iniquity. We should be full of songs like Horatio Spafford's, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But instead of reading about the man's elation, we read something quite different in verses 28 to 30. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. There are some fascinating similarities and contrasts here with the first interaction. Servant number one now has the possibility to be sort of in the king's position. And yet, the way the story is told, there are reminders that this is not the case. He found not just a debtor, but, quote, one of his fellow servants, end quote. This reinforces that Peter had asked, how often shall my brother sin against me? If the king had been gracious to a mere servant, his inferior, how much more should the servant have been to his equal? But the most obvious contrast is with the amount which servant number two owes. A hundred denarii is far, far less than 10,000 talents. To press the numbers, it is about 0.000002 of the other number. From this perspective, which is the point, this is nothing. Now, without the frame of reference from the first interaction with the king, this is a good-sized number, about three to four months' wages, maybe around something like $10,000. Now, if someone owed you ten grand, it would be hard to forget it. This seems to me to be the significance of the parable. This is significant logic here. Forgiving someone 77 times is a lot from our human perspective. Forgiveness very often is costly and it is difficult. Some have had to go through terrible tragedies. And so simply saying, you just got to forgive that person is a lot easier said than done. But though forgiveness can feel like forgetting about a $10,000 debt, from another perspective, this is nothing. A hundred denarii is nothing from the right perspective. Will we see even hard forgiveness in this light? Just how serious it is that our answer is yes will be seen in the remainder of the parable. But why not hold on to bitterness and make the person pay for what they've done? The final section of the parable powerfully portrays the importance of forgiveness. Let's start reading in verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. There is in this concluding section a strange mixture of the motivation of grace and judgment. The perspective of what the king has done should influence all that the servant did. He should have went out from that room elated with the realization that he was actually forgiven. But how quickly he lost that perspective. Our unforgiveness is so reprehensible because we have whistled out of the king's court, having escaped unimaginable consequences, carrying on like it was no big deal. 
But this section also ominously presents before us the motivation of judgment. His master was, yes, angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Unless we think that this is just here to make the story work and it's not really a relevant detail. The Lord Jesus concludes in verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother. Now, this raises all sorts of theological questions, particularly regarding the doctrine of eternal security and the perseverance of the saints and how those things interact. But this isn't a lesson on systematic theology. Jesus is giving a lesson on forgiveness. Now, I am tempted here to pause our session and deal with uh, the issue of once saved, always saved. But we have to appreciate that Jesus doesn't do this. In fact, uh, this concept of the one thing that's unforgivable is challenging even from the perspective of reading through Matthew on his own terms. And he even says that the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But to pause and have a discussion of those issues would distract us from the rhetoric of the whole parable. The parable comes along and it's like it punches us in the gut and then walks away. Jesus pronounces the somber verdict and then it's like he drops the mic. Some translations have tried to mute or soften the text here by translating torturers as jailers, but it comes from the normal root for torment. Jesus describes in graphic terms that forgiveness is withdrawn. Jesus' parable not only answers Peter's question with the answer, an unlimited number of times, Peter, but also warns Peter to think carefully about the spiritual condition indicated by the desire to count forgiveness. Love keeps no record of wrongs. To keep such a record is to forget the unconditional grace of God bestowed through the cross at such a high price. This vividly illustrates what Jesus has said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. For whatever measure you measure, it will be measured to you. The purpose of this strong imagery is to say in flaming letters, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. I wonder if there's someone that you're struggling to forgive. The best thing you can do is think about the incredible length to which Jesus Christ has gone to forgive you of your sin and then to pray for God's strength to be like him. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partners.